Okay, if you have a Bible, you can open to John's Gospel, the very end of it. You didn't cheer, so um, maybe you haven't felt that this was an affliction of long-suffering to get to the end, finally, of John's Gospel. We're looking at the very end, John chapter 21, verses 15 through 25. Hopefully you didn't think uh, it was too long to spend two years in John's Gospel, because uh, next we're going to talk about the Psalms. And there's 150 of those, <laughs> and so uh, we'll see. <clears throat> um, John's gospel ends, um, it ends like the other gospels do. Uh, it ends sort of with a forward lean. It's leaning into the future. Jesus' story isn't over. We're off to a great start, but it's not over. And you get that sense in John's gospel as well as the other gospels. So John Calvin, uh, the French reformer, uh, said quite a long time ago, said that the sum of true wisdom, the sum of true wisdom is knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. And he writes a lot lot about that, uh, but he says that that's the, the sum of true wisdom that we find in Scripture, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. So through this gospel, we've come to know Jesus, we've come to know him In his humanity and in his divinity, we've come to know him in his teachings, his wondrous signs, in his interactions with his friends and with his enemies. We've come to know Jesus in his prayer to the Father on behalf of his people. We've come to know him in his atoning death, and we've come to know him now in his resurrection. And we've come to know ourselves. We've come to know God and ourselves. In the representative actions, the reactions, the responses that all sorts of people have had to Jesus, as portrayed in this gospel, the incredulity, the confusion, the deep resistance people have to Jesus. We've come to know ourselves in the betrayal and denial of Jesus by his disciples. We've also come to know ourselves in in the contagious delight that people have when they're around Jesus, in the thankful praise that they offer to him, in the trusting submission that they offer to him, in in their love. We've come to know ourselves, even as uh, as these people who represent us in the Gospels respond to Jesus with with love. So last week, we looked at how Jesus continues to reveal himself, continues to make himself known by bringing unfit people like us into his church, into his family, and then through us, bringing yet others to himself for relationship to make himself known to all the world. We know him as the one who makes us fishers of men. That's what we talked about last week. Some of those themes are continued in our passage this morning where we see Jesus engaging Peter for Peter's own good, for Peter's restoration. It's commonly called the restoration of Peter here at the end of uh, John's gospel. I think Peter is the one in the Gospels who probably teaches us the most about what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, The Gospels usually portray Peter more frequently, more in-depth than than they portray any of the other disciples. He's the one that gives us a really good picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus because all of our big problems are on display in Peter's life. All of our big problems are right there for everybody to see. And the way that Jesus relates to Peter 
is so helpful and encouraging to us in our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with God. And now this gospel comes to a close, and as it leans out into the future of Christ's relationship with his people and their life with him in this world until he comes again, and it closes by giving us a picture of Jesus with his disciples. So we have knowledge of God and knowledge of us, people like us, portrayed for us here. And it gets right to the heart of our faith, our hope, and our love. So this morning, I hope you'll be able to see Jesus restoring love here as the thing that keeps you coming back to him, that keeps you following him, that, uh, that eventually even enables you to love him, his love. So uh, that's what we'll look at this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, here we are at the end of John's gospel, and uh, there have been many things learned, many things forgotten. Whether we remember or forget this moment or your word right now, we pray that it would impact us, that it would change us. Maybe we can't articulate all the ways in which your word would change us, all the changes that it's made in our lives. But we pray that you would do that work that only your spirit can do, fixing our eyes on Christ through faith to make us more and more like him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, Do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books 
that would be written. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So let's briefly retrace Peter's steps in getting to this point here, this interaction with Jesus. He's one of Jesus' earliest followers, one of the first guys to sort of sign on. And he's one of Jesus' closest followers. Um, His name actually was Simon, but Jesus changed it to Peter, and that means rock. And so it's sort of like naming somebody Rocky. Rocky, it's a strong, strong name. You get the idea that here's a stalwart figure, right? Rocky. You've seen the movie. You know what he's like. One scholar jokes that maybe his name should have been Sandy because he isn't exactly the most solid, rocky-type companion for Jesus. Peter can make startling confessions of who Jesus is. Where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've believed and come to know that you're the Holy One of God. So that's a startling confession that Peter has made. He makes bold professions of his own loyalty. Lord, I'll follow you anywhere, even if all these other disciples won't follow you, I will follow you, even if it means I have to die with you, I won't deny you. He's said that to Jesus. He can also be wrong-headed. He can be obstinate. He can be faithless. Far be it from you, Lord, you'll never suffer and die on the cross. Or you'll never wash my feet. Big moments of his failure. The worst of Peter was on display when Jesus was about to be crucified. It was the night before that happened. Jesus is about to be crucified, and Peter publicly repudiated him three times. His denial of Jesus was the kind of thing that you don't recover from. He was cut off. He'd cut himself off from Jesus forever, right? He would never be forgiven and welcomed again for what he had done, right? His denial was the utterly final sort. He denied Jesus three times with finality, with cursing. It was the final sort. But it wasn't the final word in Peter's relationship with Jesus. That word, the final word, belonged to Jesus, and that word would be restoration, which doesn't really carry with it a sense of finality. But Jesus would have the last word. He'd have the supreme word in this relationship. Jesus was willing to die for people like Peter, who had done all sorts of things to cut themselves off from him with varying degrees of a sense of finality. Jesus is willing to die for people like us in order to establish, to reestablish an everlasting relationship, everlasting relationship between people like us and God. And now, here in our passage, Jesus is alive again from the dead, not just willing to die, but after he rises from the dead, here he comes, tracking Peter down, not to scold him, not to teach that boy a lesson. Jesus loves his people in spite of the fact that we haven't loved him very well at all. That's the definition of his love. He loves us 
in spite of the fact that we've done a very poor job of loving him. So here on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, Jesus restores the denier. Threefold denial? Well then, threefold restoration. But let's be clear, with Jesus, restoration does not mean another chance to prove yourself. Peter had lots of chances to prove himself. He failed big time that night when Jesus was about to be killed. Restoration doesn't mean I'll give you another chance. You can prove your loyalty. You can show me that you're trustworthy and that I should love you. That's not what restoration looks like with Jesus because we will always blow that chance. We'll always blow that chance. And if Jesus made his love for us dependent on what we do with the chances that he gives us, then we would have no hope of his love. So when Jesus connects with Peter here after breakfast, he isn't saying, you denied me three times, so for, for each time you denied me, you've got to make amends. You've got to make that up. You've got to fix that. Say you're sorry, tell me you love me, and that you'll never do it again. That's not what Jesus is saying with this restoration. But don't you instinctively feel like that's pretty much what you've got to do whenever you've slipped up and fallen in your relationship with God? I've got to get serious or else he won't love me again. I'm sorry, that's wrong. That's wrong. Jesus doesn't come to Peter saying, now will you finally shape up? If I give you this chance, will you finally... Are you ready to try harder for me? Are you ready to do better to really change this time? Because, you know, I'm really starting to lose patience here. He isn't doing that. This isn't Peter's chance to redeem himself by professing his true devotion. That's not what this is. It's not his chance to redeem himself. It's not just to say, I really do love you, Jesus. Please believe me and accept me. That might be Peter's instinct. That might be our instinct to come to Jesus that way, but that's wrong. That's not what this is. It's not how relationship with God works. We can see it right here. Jesus knows better than Peter, better than we know ourselves. He knows what Peter is like. He knows what Peter is like, and he is helping Peter to acknowledge that so that their relationship can be based on Jesus' love and not not Peter's love. He calls Peter, and he calls him Simon, son of John, because, yeah, Peter hasn't been the rock. So it's like he's saying, all right, let's start over again from the beginning, Simon. Do you love me more than these, more than these other disciples love me? Do you love me more than anybody else loves me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Peter's boasted this at some point already. I've mentioned it before. He says, I will follow you even if all these others fall away. I won't. But he can't say that anymore. He can't say that anymore because, well, he didn't. He failed at the crucial point. So scholars are divided on this point. Uh, There's some debate about this, but I think that we have to pay very careful attention to the pattern of words that are being used here, the very specific Greek words. I think they do 
mean something for the significance of this passage. Two different Greek words for love are being used here by Jesus and by Peter. And maybe you're familiar with these words. Um, the first word is agapao. It's like that agape love. The second word is phileo, the brotherly kind of love. Peter himself, in Second uh, Peter chapter 1, he sees a meaningful distinction between these two words. Where he uses the word agapao there, it's translated for us love in English. Where he uses the word phileo, it's translated for us brotherly kindness. And he says, you've got to add to your brotherly kindness, love. And it's like the perfection of love, the paramount love, this agapao love, right? So the two words can be used interchangeably sometimes. That's the way they're being used here by the translators of our English text. Uh, They're translated here as synonyms, both words. They just show up as the word love for us in English. But I think John used these specific words because of their little nuances. So Jesus asks Peter, do you, agapao, love me more than these? And Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo, brotherly kindness kind of a, you know I love you that way. Peter can't bring himself to use the same language that Jesus uses. The first time Jesus asks Peter, do you, agapao, love me, he He adds the comparison there, more than these, more than anybody else, more than these other disciples who are here with you. Do you love me with a great and true paramount love that is greater than anyone else's love for me? Do you love me that way, Peter? Peter's been humbled a bit since his more braggadocious days. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. A little bit of a mumble there, maybe. Um, you know that I, I love you with a brotherly love. I'm not sure that I would say that I, Agapao, love you more than these do, but sure you know, I, Phileo, love you. Not exactly a compelling show of his devotion, but this isn't Peter's chance to redeem himself by professing true devotion. That's not what this is. In spite of an underwhelming answer, Jesus shares his life and ministry with Peter. He says, feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. Take care of the ones who are dear to me, the little ones that I love. Take care of them. They belong to me. They don't belong to you. They belong to me. But you, you watch over them. You nourish them. You feed them on my behalf and for my sake. Love the ones that I love. Take care of them. So Peter isn't cut out after all. He isn't isn't cut out. His calling is renewed. His ministry is restored. He's still given this unimaginable privilege of serving the chief shepherd as one of his under-shepherds. But this restoration isn't over yet. Jesus is after something. So, He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you, Agapao, love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. 
So it seems like Jesus sort of takes it down a notch here. He doesn't say, do you love me more than these this time? But only, do you, Agapao, love me? Do you really? And again, Peter responds with that other word for love. He's trying to say the right thing that he knows Jesus wants to hear. It's, it's the right thing, but he's also trying to be honest. And he can't quite muster up enough to say, yes, I, I Agapao, love you. Maybe it isn't quite that great and true paramount love that Jesus is talking about. There's definitely a strong affinity. (laughs) Strong affinity. And at this point, if I were Peter, I'd be worried about Jesus discovering my lack of real love. I can't bring myself to say I love you like I should. I'd be worried about Jesus discovering my lack of real love, but apparently what Peter says is acceptable, right? Because again... Jesus renews his calling and restores his ministry. He says, tend my sheep. My people need help, and you are going to give it to them. They need guidance. They need protection because I want them to live and flourish. You be a good shepherd like I am the good shepherd. Do that on my behalf with these people. But this isn't a reward for Peter's faithfulness. Right? I mean, it can't be. This isn't a chance for Peter to redeem himself by professing true devotion. Jesus isn't basing his acceptance of Peter on Peter's having felt the right thing, said the right thing, or done the right thing. Peter still hasn't done any of those things. Peter might not quite understand that yet, so... This restoration needs to go a little further, a little deeper. He said to him, the third time. The third time. Simon, son of John, not Agapao. Do you phileo love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you phileo love me? And he said to him, Lord, you you know everything. You know that I phileo love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So Peter grieves because Jesus has gone deep with him, deeper than he wanted to go. Jesus knows him all the way down, and he shows Peter that he knows him all the way down. I am saddened by the fact that I can't seem to love Jesus like I should. That makes me sad. Aren't you saddened by the fact that you can't love Jesus the way you should? Aren't we all? It hurts to think of Jesus knowing my sinful lack of love. My response to him is nothing like it should be. It hurts to think that I've broken and violated and abused our relationship in so many ways, and yet the Lamb of God died for me, and the risen Lord still leans toward me, and when he asks hard questions like this and uncovers our hearts to us so that we have a knowledge of ourselves, it's for our good. He's doing it for our sake. He's giving us true knowledge of God, and he's giving us true knowledge of ourselves, 
He's giving it to us. He already has it. Jesus isn't asking Peter about his love because he isn't quite sure. And Jesus just needs a little bit more to be reassured of it so that he knows Peter's heart. I need to know. I'm probing here. For my sake, Peter, what are you going to say? What's really going on inside of you? It's not what's happening. Jesus has been asking Peter about Peter's love so that Peter could know himself. So that Peter could know himself and more so that Peter would know Jesus, so that Peter could grow in his knowledge of Jesus' restoring love, even though Peter's love for Jesus is weak at best, putting it mildly. Even though his love for Jesus is weak, Jesus renews his calling and he restores his ministry the same as before. He says, feed my sheep. Nothing has changed here. This was always the plan. Feed my sheep. Now you know better what kind of food they need. Now you know that they need me. Now you know that they need my love, just like you do, and that only that will sustain them. And that's the only way to have a relationship with God. That's the only way to have peace with God. You know it very well now, Peter. So Peter is increasingly searched out and he's known by Jesus. He's increasingly humbled. He's even grieved as he's coming to a deeper knowledge of himself. And so he demonstrates what D.A. Carson calls an exemplary brokenness. Exemplary brokenness. Usually when we think of things like exemplary piety, piety, we're thinking like, oh, somebody who's really got their stuff together and they're a great model for us and I just want to be like him and do all the right things like he does. Uh, That's not the way that Peter is an example for us. His is an exemplary brokenness. And now we can relate to Peter because he can relate to us. And his life can be an example for us because he can relate to us in his brokenness. He knows his, his own capacity for failure. He knows some of it at least. He knows his own tendency towards scandalous sin, toward personal faithlessness. But what's more, he knows the real shape, the real definition of Jesus' love. Jesus loves his people in spite of the fact that we haven't loved him very well. He loves his people. Jesus really does know all these things about Peter. Peter's had to confess it. You really do know everything about me. Jesus knows it all, and he loves him anyway. And it's hard to believe, but that's exactly what God's people need to know about themselves and about Jesus. I sin, and he loves me anyway. I sin, and he loves me anyway. As Walker Percy said, we love those who know the worst of us and don't turn their faces away. And that's Jesus. John writes later in uh, 1 John chapter 4, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son for us. It's someone who knows that, knows himself like Peter has come to know himself, and who knows Jesus as the one who loves us anyway. Someone who knows that, who can help God's people, because he personally knows Jesus now, really knows him. 
He knows the Jesus who doesn't turn his face away. So the Christian does not help anyone by saying, look how great I am, and you can too. That's not, that's not Christianity. That could never help anybody. Stop thinking of Christianity like that. Christians can be honest about ourselves because we know that Jesus knows us and he loves us anyway. So everyone knows Peter's story now. He hasn't hidden it for shame. Peter's the one who publishes this story. All, all the Gospels tell his story. Even some of the, new, the other New Testament writers tell more about what Peter is like. Peter confesses what Peter is like. Everyone now knows Peter's story because it points so well to Jesus. It gives us such a great knowledge of God and ourselves. And that's the greatest privilege anyone could ever have, the privilege of a life that points to Jesus, like Peter's does. Jesus continues and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this, he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God, the death of uh, crucifixion. The tradition says that he was crucified upside down because he didn't think himself worthy to be crucified the same way that Jesus was. And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. So Jesus doesn't say, I'm so glad you've learned your lesson about humility. Now, now you're ready. Now you're ready for this new stage of your life. You're ready to enter into the sensational, dramatic, impressive ministry that's before you. You'll preach to thousands. You'll perform miracles of healing. You'll plant churches around the world. You'll, you'll write the Holy Scriptures. You're going to change the whole world. It's going to be so awesome, Peter. <clears throat> Rather, Jesus says, Peter, you said you would follow me, so follow me. Follow me. Let the path of my life, let the pattern of my life be the path and the pattern of your life. I went to the cross to glorify God. You will too. Follow me. See my footsteps. See how I went through the world. See how I went through death and out the other side. How I lived to God and how I was raised to resurrection life forever. I've blazed the trail for you. Follow me. And that's the real privilege of knowing Jesus. He shares everything with us. He shares his life with us. He shares his sufferings with us. He shares his resurrection with us. He shares his relationship to God with us. He shares his glory with us. He shares himself with us. Jesus didn't tell Peter what kind of death he would suffer as sort of a poetic justice or as punishment, or a curse, or to make up for his previous denial of Jesus. That's how I'm prone to read this passage. Jesus has some pretty hard words about how it's going to end up for for Peter now. And I assume because of his failures, he's got to really suffer, and it's going to suck for him. That's not what he's doing. Peter's death is not the chance to redeem himself by showing true devotion Jesus told Peter how he would die because Jesus loved Peter. 
because Peter would be made able to glorify God once and for all, made able to follow Jesus, even to the cross, even in his death. If you know the love of Christ, if you love him in return, if you follow him and serve his people in his name, then like Jesus, you'll also suffer for God's glory. First Peter, he writes in chapter 4, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. He's celebrating the idea that we'd be privileged to suffer with Christ and like Christ and for Christ. Christian, you will suffer for love's sake, for Christ's sake, for God's sake, because the spirit of glory rests upon you. You could be afraid of that future because it will hurt in whatever way it hurts, physically, emotionally, whatever. You could be afraid of it because it'll hurt, or you could be thankful for the privilege of knowing and following Jesus. Paul says in Philippians 1, he says, It has been granted, granted to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That's been granted, as if it were a privilege, as if it were a blessing. Apparently, God's ultimate goal isn't to rearrange your life circumstances in order to spare you from suffering. Apparently, God's ultimate goal in your life, the thing that he wants most in this life right now, is not for everybody around you to love you and you never have problems and you just skate through very comfortably. His blessing, what he grants, means that you will deepen in your love and your devotion to God. You'll grow in those things, even if others make that difficult for you even if that's hard because of the circumstances of this world. That's his blessing. For Peter, following Jesus, being restored, would mean the growth of his love. It hadn't been perfected yet. It would mean the growth of his love. Before, he was ashamed even to be seen as associated with Jesus, but at the end of his life, even Peter, even Peter would make a faithful confession even in the face of public humiliation and execution. With Jesus, Peter will turn away from the life of self-preservation at any cost, even in the cost of the life of his friend. He'll turn away from the life of self-preservation. He'll reject the life of self-advancement and upward mobility, and he'll give his own life to the glory of God with Jesus. That isn't Peter redeeming himself. It's Peter's opportunity to know that the Spirit really is at work in his life, the Spirit of glory. And God is at work in his life. The God of love really has been gracious to him. He really has redeemed him. Here's the evidence of it. A greater love for Jesus that'll just go anywhere. He might only have basically an affinity for Jesus now. But at the end, he will go to his death because of his love for Jesus. That's what Jesus is predicting. 
This is not an oracle of doom. Growth in our love for Jesus, it's a process. Nobody's perfect. Nobody ever will be in this life. It's a process that will take our whole lives. That much is obvious, even from this passage, because immediately following his restoration, what does he do? He looks to deflect the uncomfortable focus of the conversation away from himself and onto the beloved disciple, John. What about this guy over here? What about this man, Lord? Clearly, uh, he hasn't arrived yet. That moment never really happens in the New Testament. He never really pulls himself together as he follows Jesus. Even after the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, sure, he does some amazing things, and he grows in his faithfulness. He grows. But he still drags his feet about going to a Gentile's house in Acts chapter 10. He still caves to peer pressure from the self-righteous people, the whole Galatians controversy that Paul writes about. Jesus immediately has to remind Peter, you follow me. Keep your eyes on me. It's like a parent towing a distracted child through the grocery store. Follow me. No, follow me. No, follow me. Peter will always have a hard time doing that. And so will you. And Jesus knows that. And he'll keep renewing and restoring you. He'll keep granting you deeper knowledge of God and knowledge of yourself. And he'll keep being faithful to you even when you are faithless because he loves you anyway. That's who he is. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it is very hard for us to keep this straight in our minds and our hearts to actually believe that you love us with a love that will absolutely undeniably restore people like us to yourself, that you've done it once and for all through the, the sacrifice of your son, the fact that you've, you've got a plan, that you're working all things out. You're going you're gonna to perfect us until the day of Christ Jesus. You're going to work that process in us whereby we become more like Jesus in our love. We, become, uh, we, have, we have a healthier and better response to you as we go through this life. Uh, That response is difficult for us. It's hard for us to see all these things, but we pray that you would be with us, that you'd never leave us or forsake us, that you would do that work in us. And it's, uh, it's your idea. You've guaranteed it through the blood of your son. And so we're thankful that you're the kind of God who loves people who don't love you very well. And we pray that you would increase our love for you and for one another as, as a response to seeing Jesus and really knowing you and knowing ourselves. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.